Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Seven weeks ago, we began a journey through Genesis in search of Jesus. You say, Jesus? In Genesis? Oh, yes. And we do that because that's how Christians read the Old Testament, always in the light of Christ. So as Christians, when we're reading our Bible, we don't wait for the book of Matthew to find Jesus. We don't read Genesis through Malachi without a sighting of Jesus. Rather, we read the entire Bible as about Jesus, and we learn that from Jesus himself, who explained this interpretive method to the disciples on the Emmaus Road on the day of his resurrection, that ultimately all Scripture finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, what we did with Genesis is what I want us to do now with Exodus. Let's just keep going. Now, We've got four more weeks until Advent. When we get to Advent, we'll start having, you know, Advent-themed emphasis and sermons. But between now and Advent, these four Sundays coming up, I want us to go to the book of Exodus. Let's call it, Let My People Go, Encountering Christ in Exodus. Paris is all right. That's the next, that's the next four weeks and where to start today. Well, sermon number one in this series will, will be the burning bush. Now, unlike Genesis, Exodus is really about God working through one central figure. You meet a lot of people, you know, that God is working through in Genesis. You have, you know, Adam and Noah and the patriarchs and Joseph, etc. But the book of Exodus is really all about one central figure, and that is the person of Moses. Now, like Joseph that I talked about last Sunday, Moses seems to live life in three stages. First, there's Moses, the son of Pharaoh. Then there's Moses, the son-in-law of Jethro. But finally, there's Moses, the man of God. Exodus Chapter 3, verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing Yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see God, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. No one looms larger in the story of the First Testament 
than Moses. Moses, the deliverer. Moses, the lawgiver. Moses, the man who speaks to God face to face. Moses, the man who goes toe to toe with Pharaoh. But at midlife, Moses was none of these things. At midlife, Moses was just a forgotten man with a scandalous past. A former prince in Pharaoh's court, he was now a fugitive working for his father-in-law in the outback. But all of that changed in the mysterious encounter with the burning bush. Moses was born to Amram and Jochebed during Israel's awful days of enslavement. Through a series of providential events, though, Moses, the Hebrew baby, was spared from the enforced infanticide program that Pharaoh had imposed upon Hebrew baby boys. And as it turns out, Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh as the son of Pharaoh's daughter with his own mother being the nursemaid. So Moses begins life as a pharaonic prince. He was an important member of the royal family. He was in the courts of Pharaoh. He was close to power. He had wealth and privilege. And this could have been the end of the story. Certainly there would be a temptation for that just to remain the same. You belong to the privileged elite. You're an important member of the royal family. You live in Pharaoh's court with proximity to power and wealth and privilege. But something stirred within Moses as he began to come to age. And he ventured forth from the privileged courts of Pharaoh to really see the condition, the plight of his people. The Hebrews had arrived in Egypt when Joseph, the viceroy of, of Egypt, had brought Jacob and the family, 75 people in all, to Egypt during the famine. And for a few generations, they had a good life there. But then there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And the Hebrew people began to become cheap labor for the empire. Because mighty empires always want cheap labor. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to pay much if they can get away with it. And that was the role that the Hebrews began to fill as they labored in the brick kilns. Making bricks for Pharaoh and for Egypt. And so Moses ventures forth from his ensconced privilege into the real world as it was. And he, what he beheld shocked him. He beheld injustice. He found out that his people were not fairly treated. That they were taken advantage of. That they were locked into a permanent underclass. They were often subject to violence and abuse. And Moses became angry. And in his anger he rose up and killed an Egyptian. Who was mistreating a Hebrew. Moses hid the body of the Egyptian whom he had slain in the sand. 
but the body was found and Moses' crime was discovered and Moses had to flee from Pharaoh and he fled into the wilderness. He fled into the desert. He fled into the Sinai. You see, Moses, when he first encountered the plight of his people in their bondage, in their sorrow, in their suffering, assumed that he could employ pharaonic power to save Israel. His people need to be saved. They need to be rescued. They need to be lifted up. They need to be delivered from their bondage. And Moses just assumed that because he was an important prince in Pharaoh's courts that he could use pharaonic power to save Israel. But he was wrong. As we will learn in the book of Exodus, Israel needs to be saved from Pharaoh, not by Pharaoh. Israel needs to be saved from Pharaoh, not by Pharaoh. But Moses didn't learn that lesson at first. This is the same temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness in the third temptation to reach for the sword of Caesar to bring about good. But Jesus, the greater than Moses, saw through it and said, that's the bow down to the devil. And he said, "Mm -mm, get away from me, Satan. It is written, you shall serve the Lord your God and him only shall you worship. So now Moses is in the wilderness. He's in a real wilderness, a literal wilderness, a desert wilderness, but he's also in the wilderness of midlife disillusionment. He's become disillusioned. I mean, he thought, you know, life was this, and he found out it's that. He thought his life was going to go one way, and it goes another. He thought his life was, you know, on a trajectory toward greatness. And now look at him. He's in the wilderness of disillusionment. But that is a place where your soul can expand. If you're open to it. In that wilderness of midlife disillusionment, your soul can begin to expand. Moses... The fugitive, hiding out in the wilderness, found employment as a shepherd working for a Bedouin priest by the name of Jethro. Eventually, Moses married one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah. And so, Moses had flunked out of the 1% of Egypt. I mean, he was right there, you know, he's the elite, but, but he flunks out of that. And now he's a nomadic shepherd herding a flock not his own. This is, this is the great stripping away. The wilderness is scouring Moses. This one who had been raised in the most privileged place on planet earth at that time. And now look at him. Working for his father-in-law as a nomadic shepherd in the wilderness it's a stripping away but what is happening is is what is Moses doesn't know it but what's happening is he is being prepared to possess the soul of a mystic by mystic I mean someone who has a direct encounter and experience with God 
He's being prepared for that. But, but all, that, all that Egyptian stuff, all that pharaonic stuff, oh, that's got to get it stripped away. But the desert's a good place to do that. That's why so many of the historic Christian mystics literally come out of the desert. I mean, they flee into the desert, and then something happens. And I mean, the soul of a mystic is more likely to be formed in Death Valley than in Silicon Valley. Put it that way. Put it that way. Not to say that if you work in Silicon Valley, you can't have an experience with God, but you're going to have to find some intentional Sinai for the soul, some desert retreat that you can go into interiorly and, and, and let the Spirit of God begin to strip away certain things. Moses doesn't know it yet in these kind of bland years of nothingness, living merely as the son-in-law of Jethro. He doesn't know it yet, but he's about to wake up. He's about to wake up. He, he, thinks he's, he thinks he's really reached the end of his life, when in fact he's on the cusp of the beginning. The Moses that we really come to know, his life is just about to begin, but first he has to wake up. And his awakening came through a burning bush. Moses was deep into the wilderness. I mean, there's wilderness and then there's wilderness, wilderness. He's deep in the outback of the Sinai desert. He has the flock of Jethro with him. And he comes across a bush, a desert shrub, and the bush is burning. Well, that may or may not be remarkable. I suppose we could imagine a bush in a desert being on fire. But the thing was, this bush was burning, but not burned up. In other words, the bush was aflame, but the bush remained unharmed. Fire was all within and without the bush, but the bush remained verdant and living. Well, this is a great wonder. And Moses said, ah, I must turn aside to see. I must Pay attention to this. I need to contemplate this. I've not seen this before. Where a bush is burning, but not consumed, not burned up, not destroyed. A bush remains living even though it's in the flame. And so he turns aside. Well, the flame that Moses beheld in the bush was no ordinary flame. It was not the ordinary fires of combustion. It was, in fact, the fire of God. And when God noticed that Moses turned aside to see the wonder, God spoke to Moses out of the bush and he said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And God said, well, let's get started. First of all, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. It's holy ground. It's no ordinary place you've arrived. The holy ground. It's holy ground. Take your shoes off. I've been around the world and I've been on some holy ground and most of the time they make you take off your shoes. I've been in Buddhist temples where they made me take off my shoes and Hindu temples where they made me take off my shoes and, and uh, in Islamic mosques where they make you take off your shoes and many churches in India, they have you take off your shoes. The only place in America where they make, make me take off my shoes is airport security. 
Because in a superpower, that's the one thing that's sacred. Ow! Watch it, Brian. So he takes off his shoes because he's on holy ground. And in a conversation, he discovers who it is that is in that flame, in that bush. And he discovers the mysterious name of God. I am who I am. And this is the rebirth of Moses as the man of God. His story doesn't end as the son of Pharaoh. His story doesn't end as the son-in-law of Jethro. His story really begins when Moses first begins to become the man of God. And that happens at the burning bush. In Mount Sinai. In the Sinai wilderness. At the foot of Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. It has two names. Fourteen years ago was Word of Life's 25th anniversary. And that's a, you know, that's a big one. Right? I mean, we feel pretty good about 39, but we're really talking about 40 already. You have these certain, you know, landmarks, milestones. And 25 was a big one. So 14 years ago, we were celebrating our silver anniversary as a church. You might say to use wedding anniversary language. And we made a big deal. We had in several guest speakers. We had several nights of meetings. Our anniversary Sunday that year was November 5th. The next day on Monday, Perry and I left for Israel. We were, we were leading again one of our, you know, as we do, one of our Holy Land pilgrimages. But Perry and I went a week early. Our group was only come, was going to come a week later. We went on our own a week early. Why? Because after 25 years of ministry, I made an appointment with God. I felt like I needed an appointment with God. And so I thought, where can I meet God? Where would be a good place to meet God? You see, you can meet God anywhere. I know, but sometimes you like to do something and make a statement. And so I said, I want to meet God on Mount Sinai. I'll just go to, I'll just go to Israel a, a, a week early and we'll find our way there. So on the next day, on Monday, Perry and I flew from Kansas City to New York to Tel Aviv to Elat on the Red Sea, and then we collapsed into a hotel bed, exhausted after all that travel. But we were up the next morning with our luggage, and we walked, didn't take a taxi, we walked to Egypt. I mean, it's right there. But we walked across the border, just carried our stuff across the border, where we met the guide and the driver whom we had hired to take us to Mount Sinai. I got a picture of, uh, there we are. Oh, Brian's on, you were so young. And uh, actually, I was 47, but anyway, um, you, you recognize me in the Billabong surfing t shirt. Not that I know a thing about surfing, but I like the t shirt anyway. Um, and then to my left in the white shirt, that's, that's Mina. Mina is a charismatic Egyptian Orthodox Christian. And, you know, we hear from him now and then. We've, we've still kind of stayed in touch a little bit. He's a charismatic Egyptian Orthodox Christian. You say, I didn't know there's such things. There's so many things you don't know. <laughs> that's just one of them. All right, and then, and then the guy in the turban, that's, that's Ahmed, the Bedouin. Because we were going to Mount Horeb, but not by roads. 
We're going through the desert. And only the Bedouins, you know, anybody else get lost and never heard of again. And so, so he, that's our driver, the Bedouin. He knows the way. And then the fellow in the suit, I didn't know he was going to be there. But Mina and Ahmed said, you know, Al-Qaeda is all of a sudden active in, uh, in uh, the Sinai. And they've been taken to kidnapping Westerners like you. <laughs> and so we want security. <laughs> And this is, this is Mohammed from Cairo, a retired or former policeman. And you can't tell it, but he's got an Uzi underneath his jacket there. Wasn't sure how I felt about that, but this is their gig. So, all right. And we pile into that. And Perry took the picture. But fear not, I got, I got a picture of Perry. Look at that. That desert fox right there. Look at her. That... That was from all in the way. We stopped now and then had little adventures, and we were exploring a slot canyon, and that's Perry and that. We had some adventures. Don't have time to tell about it all. Came upon some other people that were broken down and had to try to rescue them. And anyway, um, we finally got to the monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, where we were going to spend the night after dark because we had delays along the way, and we got in much later than we thought. We're still very tired. We're still jet lagged. And we, we get to bed late. And we're up at 2 in the morning. We got to bed around 10 or 11 and up at 2 in the morning. Because they said it's going to take four hours to climb Mount Sinai. And, I, and sunrise was at 6 a.m. And that was my appointment. Sunrise, Mount Sinai. Oh, yeah. On November 9th, which is the anniversary of my conversion. So, so on November 9th, the 32nd anniversary of my encountering Jesus. 25 years after ministry, I wanted to meet God on Mount Sinai and just have a little conversation about what's next. Got another 25 years to go. We should, we should talk about it. And so I said, God, I'll meet you on Mount Sinai at sunrise. And God said, I got it in my book. And so we need to be on Mount Sinai at sunrise. And they said, it'll take four hours and up we go. And when it took us two hours, that's great. It only took us two hours. The problem was we were two hours early for our appointment, and it was freezing cold up there. I mean, it was literally freezing. It was 32 degrees. It was freezing. And we had enough clothes for hiking, but not for sitting in the dark, waiting, and we were shivering. Uh, there's a picture of me. That's, uh, there's a little chapel on the top of Mount Sinai, and I'm, I'm waiting for the sunrise. I'm reading my Bible. I know where I am. I'm reading, uh, I'm reading um, Exodus 32. And I'm waiting, and, and, and the sun rose, and God came, and I prayed and rededicated my life for another 25 years of ministry, and it was a very holy, sacred time. Then we started hiking down the mountain, but this time in, in the daylight, we can actually see where we're going, because we went up in headlamps, you know, just you know, when you're hiking with a headlamp, you don't see anything but just what's right, your, your feet right in front of you. So now we're hiking down, and we're, and it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, it's stunning, it's mysterious it's the Sinai wilderness and towards the bottom as we get to the bottom of Mount Sinai for the first time we see St. Catherine's monastery in the daylight we had spent the night there but we hadn't really seen much and that's my picture of as we're coming down we're getting near the bottom of the mountain and there is that monastery you say is it old uh, it was constructed in the year 330 330 um, it's a fascinating place it is, it has the world's oldest library for one thing, 
But more significantly to me, it is the oldest site of continuous Christian worship in the world. Five times a day, every day, for nearly 17 centuries, Christians have prayed and worshipped in that place. I felt the holiness of it. We got down there and Perry and I found a Greek Orthodox monk who spoke English who would give us a little tour. And he led us around and he showed us their chapel. He showed us the library, the oldest library in the world. He showed us the Christ Pantocrator icon. You've seen all kinds of duplications. Of, this, is, this is the oldest icon in the world. And it's there. I mean, that's, that's, that's the real one. This is the oldest icon in the world, the Christ Pantocrator. And then he led us into a courtyard and kind of without any irony or any fanfare or drama, he just pointed at a bush and he said, oh yeah, and there's the burning bush. He said, uh, he said yeah, that's, that's, that's why we're here. That's why we built our monastery here because it's the side of the burning bush. And that's the bush right there. And I was like, Really? I better take a picture of it just to make sure. But So, I've thought about it over the years. This Greek Orthodox monk at St. Catherine's Monastery shows me a bush and says, there's the bush. There's the burning bush. But is it the burning bush? Of course it is. Of course it is. The holy bramble, that's, that's the kind of bush it is. It's a, it's a rubus sanctus, or holy bramble. It's kind of viney and got some tiny little thorns. The holy bramble in the courtyard of St. Catherine's Monastery is the burning bush, just like the giant sycamore tree in my backyard is the burning bush. What makes the burning bush the burning bush is not the bush, but the awakening of Moses or you and me to the presence of God. Okay. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a Christian mystic poet. She says it better in poetry than I can say it in prose. So here's what she says about it. Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. So where do we encounter Christ in the story of Moses and the burning bush? Well, you know. Christ is the angel of the Lord in the flame of fire in the bush. An early Christian poet, Prudentius, Perry, he lived in northern Spain. A fourth century Christian poet, Prudentius, he says it like this. The one who appeared in the burning bush was God the Word. The unharmed bush anticipated the body that the sun assumed. I love that. So, so, so what is the burning bush? It's an anticipation of the incarnation. I mean, it's just a bush. It's just a desert bramble. It's just a bush. It's a bush of the earth. But what happened is 
the angel of the Lord took up residence in that bush. And Moses beheld it aflame. And this anticipates the fact that Christ will come among us. The Logos, the Word of God, will become flesh. His body's like our body. His body's fully human, derived from the dust of the earth like ours. But the Logos, the Logos of God took up, the Logos became flesh, was made flesh, inhabited flesh. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. At first, at first the disciples didn't recognize it, but up there on Mount Tabor, they saw the flame in the transfiguration. And remember, Moses and Elijah were there. That was the second time Moses had seen a burning bush. He saw the burning bush at Mount Horeb, and then many centuries later, he saw the burning bush that is Christ on Mount Tabor. Through the incarnation, the Logos, the Word of God, Christ, assumes, takes on humanity that he might heal humanity. In his death and burial, Christ descends to the depth of depths. Christ descends to the depths of all things, into death itself, into Hades, into hell. In his death and burial, Christ descends to the depth of all things, but in his resurrection and ascension, Christ ascends to the height of all things. So that the Paschal mystery is that Christ, in his death and burial, resurrection and ascension, descends into the depths of Hades and ascends to the right hand of God. This is one of the major themes that the Apostle Paul weaves into his epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1.9, God set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1.22, God has put all things under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body the fullness of Him who fills all things everywhere with Himself. Ephesians 4.10 He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill the entire universe with Himself. The Christ who appeared to Moses in the burning bush at Mount Sinai now fills the entire universe with Himself. So that now, listen to me, listen, every bush, every tree, every bird, every blade of grass, every grain of sand is aflame with the glory of Christ. But if we rush through life in a mad dash, in a spiritual stupor, we miss it all. What happens to Moses at the burning bush is he anticipates that which is true in Christ, and he sees it. You wonder, you wonder if Pharaoh had been there. I don't think Pharaoh would have seen the burning bush. He'd have just seen a bush. Because he's too busy with other things. He's too preoccupied. But Moses has been stripped down by the desert, and he's opened up, and he can behold the wonders. 
What I'm saying is, right now, every bush, every tree, every bird, every blade of grass, every grain of sand is a flame of the glory of Christ. But we have to perceive it. And for that to happen, we have to slow down. Moses wasn't meant to be the privileged son of Pharaoh, even though no doubt that was very tempting. And Moses wasn't meant to merely be the son-in-law of Jethro, even though he thought that was going to be the end. Moses was always meant to be the man of God who would deliver Israel out of their bondage. But for Moses to become who he was meant to be, he had to encounter Christ in the burning bush. It all begins with the burning bush. Moses, who delivers Israel, confronts Pharaoh, parts the Red Sea, travels to Sinai, receives the law, leads Israel through the wilderness. That Moses begins at the burning bush. So what is your burning bush? Where is your burning bush? I don't know. What I do know is that you probably need to cultivate some slowness of soul. Some stillness of mind. It's hard to wake up to the burning bushes that are all around us in the 24-7 madness of make more bricks Egypt. This is the value of some deliberate practices of prayer and contemplation. Because I find the more I slow down my soul in prayer, the more I take time to sit with Jesus, the more burning bushes I encounter. The more I'm attuned to Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. I try to cultivate that by praying every morning. Christ above me, very God, very God. Christ below me, incarnate of the earth. Christ before me when seen, Christ behind me when unseen. Christ at my right hand in my strength, Christ at my left hand in my weakness. Christ all around me, filling all things everywhere with himself. Christ within me, formed by faith. Because the most glorious thing is that in the end, I can become a burning bush. That's what I want to be. I want to be a burning bush. I want to be so intentionally conscious of being filled with Christ that I'm on fire. That I'm on fire. That Christ is perceived in me as a holy flame of fire. And that's the possibility, yay, the destiny for every one of you. To be so filled with Christ that you become a burning bush and you attract other people. And people say, I must turn aside to see this, this wondrous thing. This person's on fire, but they're not burned out. They're not burned up. They just keep, they just have this steady glow about them. Just a steady glow about them. It's because Christ dwells in your heart by faith. Amen. Stand up with me. Let's pray a little bit. I can preach about slowing down. Let's just do a little slowing down here for a moment. Just, just slow down. Lord Jesus, help us to slow down in a world that's always speeding up. 
Help us to cultivate stillness in a world that gets louder and louder. Help us to find in our interior some wilderness, some desert, some Sinai where slowness and stillness can become a haven from the mad dash and the blaring loudness of the time in which we live. And there in that place may we encounter the burning bush who is Christ. May we begin to see that every bush is aflame with the glory of Christ. And may we at last in fact become burning bushes. Because you, Lord Jesus Christ, dwell within us. Amen and amen. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now as we prepare to receive the body and blood of Christ, let us make our confession of sin. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him right here. The body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ shed for us.